You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. My name is Jake. I'm a church planning resident at Sojourn Heights, and um, Marshall's kind enough to keep asking me to come back, so I guess uh, I'm doing okay. Though this time he's actually here, so I can't say whatever I want, because uh, he can pretty easily shut me down. Um, but our collective of churches is going through the church calendar this year, and so we're in a season known as Epiphany. And Epiphany is just a word that means revelation, often divine, that something that is made known. And as it applies to the church calendar, it's a, well, what I like to call a, a discipline of the imagination, that we're entering back into this time and this place when in Advent we're eagerly waiting for God to come. And now in Epiphany we're learning to walk with Him and discover Jesus all over again. And so that's what we want to do, and we're going to look at Mark chapter 1. But uh, before we do, I'd like to pray for us, if that's all right. So if you'd pray with me. God, our Father, we thank you that you are God who has come for us. So, Lord, you have heard our cries and our longing, Lord, for the world to be set right. So, Lord, you sent your Son... Christ, to come and live in the flesh, and to show us, Lord, the way to you. I pray, Spirit, now that you would come and you would speak through your word, and that you would uh, lead us to know Jesus and fall in love with him all over again. We give this time to you, and it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, you may not agree with this, but I think that in the last 10 years or so, the best superhero movie, hands down, was Man of Steel. Uh, if you, you, if you want to argue, that's fine, but if you say anything about the Hulk, I'm just going to stop you right there, because all of those were terrible. But I just found some, something about that movie just grabbed me, and, and I think part of it was that it wasn't, it, it wasn't like some Michael Bay film that was just full of special effects and explosions and all sorts of crazy things, but it was actually focused on this man. And we sort of walk through life with him and see what he has to encounter. But it still struck a chord with me because like all these other superhero movies, it still has the same sense of we need some sort of otherworldly hero to save us from cosmic evil. And, you know, it's any, you can look almost anywhere, and whether it's a TV or movie, we hear the same rumor and the same whisper all through culture and down through the centuries that we need some sort of otherworldly ruler to set things right. And we look at a guy like Superman and we say, man, that's, that's a king I could have. But really, when you think about it, it's not so much that, truthfully, I shouldn't say that it's a king that I should have. Really, it's that, that's the king I want to be. I remember hearing... Uh, Jerry Seinfeld make a joke that, you know, as a kid, he grew up with comic books and superheroes, and he said, you know, for men, uh, these aren't just stories, these are options, and we all sort of consider ourselves low-level superheroes, and the ladies may not get that, but I guarantee you every guy in this room does, and, uh, you know, when, whatever the next superhero movie's coming out, what is it, Avengers, the next one in May, just do so. just remember this, when you go see that movie, I want you to watch every man as he's walking into that movie. He may be busy, maybe on his phone, whatever, but watch him when he comes out. I guarantee you he'll stand a little taller, put his shoulders back. 
he won't be looking for a fight, but, you know, he's ready for one. Uh, and little boys, I've got a little boy. He's almost 16 months old. And, you know, little boys are unashamed of this. You know, when, when the day comes that I take Noah to go see a movie like this, he's going to be dressed up as Iron Man. He's going to be shooting lasers at people, unashamed. But the fact is still true that we, there's something about these stories that just grab us, that we all want to be that hero. And we don't see ourselves as the one who needs Superman. We want to be Superman. I don't want to have to be the one trying to find the bat signal, so hopefully maybe Batman might come help me. I want to, I want to be Batman. But before we know it, and as we come back down from these stories, before we know it, when we see ourselves as the hero, we quickly turn into the villain. And I see this all the time. You know, There's nothing like marriage to show you these things. Um, in those moments when... Whitney's struggling or confused about something, and I sort of raise up and try to fix it. When I try to act like, no, here's what you need to do, that never helps her. You know what? You know what I've, I've learned this slowly over almost five years. You know what I've learned that, that communicates to her? Man, if only you could be like me, then this would be no problem. You know what ministers to her? In those moments when I say, me too, baby, me too. And really what we want is not, is not this, this king that we'd always want to be, but really what we need is a king that we would never want, but we've always dreamed of. And that's exactly the kind of king that we find in Jesus as he comes to us in Mark chapter 1. But he's not a king that says, hey, let, let me do this for you. If only you, could, if only you could be like me, this wouldn't be a problem, but you can't, so I'll take care of it for you. He's a king who says, yeah, me too because I, I choose to enter into this with you. And as, as, as we think about these stories that have come down to us and we come to this, uh, this, this reminder of the God who comes to us as king, Mark opens with those very same whispers, the same ones that infuse our stories today. Look at where he starts, Mark chapter 1. I want to back up a bit. In verse 1, he says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And what's interesting about what Mark is doing there is even though he says, This is, a, this is Isaiah, it's not in the strict sense a specific verse in Isaiah. Really, it's a mashup of several different verses, particularly Malachi 3, which in verse 1 it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. You hear part of that in what Mark writes here. But then in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, he says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So it begs the question, okay, why, why would Mark do this? Why would he quote a verse and say it's from Isaiah, but it's kind of a mashup of things? Uh, well, part of it is that he, he's not a 20th century contemporary Western American, so he doesn't think like we do. We're so very into uh, precise, neat little packages, and if it's not exactly this, well, then it's wrong. 
And it's not that they didn't care about nuance and they didn't care about truth and error because they did. But really what Mark is doing here, it's, it, there's a, two different things to it. Number one, he says it's from Isaiah because Isaiah was the most prominent of the Old Testament prophets. He wrote one of the largest books, had one of the longest ministries, and had one of the most numerous collections of prophecies and messages about God who will rescue his people. And so in a way, any, any sort of promise of a Messiah, we could say, is Isianic. That it follows in the same spirit of Isaiah. Uh, but beyond that, it's also theological, because Isaiah is often called the fifth gospel. Because everywhere it's filled, even though there, there, there are messages of, uh, of consequences for sin, and this is the destruction that's going to come, quickly on the heel so often comes a message of comfort. And not trite comfort, not meaningless comfort, not well-meaning comfort, but the comfort of a God who says, I will come and set things right. And so Mark, in doing this, is calling together every message of, of hope from God to every prophet from Abraham to Malachi, and he's bringing them together into one choir of voices that is best captured in the spirit of Isaiah to say every hope and every message from all of history that God has ever given is coming together in this image of the one Messiah that is best seen in Isaiah. And all these whispers and rumors of a king who would come and set the world to right, it's coming. And he's coming through the way that Isaiah said he would. And the thing that's so powerful about that is that in this moment, Malachi was one of the last prophets to write. And it would be 400 years of silence before this would come again. 400 years. And whatever you're waiting for, if you've been waiting for a while, I guarantee you it hasn't been 400 years. But you know what that feels like. Wondering. Has God forgotten? And implicit in that is the fact that God's memory doesn't dull with time. It's just as sharp today as it ever was. And though they may seem as just whispers and rumors to us, God hasn't forgotten. And God is coming. And that anticipation that we see in the prophets and that Mark recalls for us it's meant for us to anticipate something. And we see that in John, starting in verses 4, that this king isn't political, it's not social, it's personal. And we don't make the path straight through institutions and legislation, but it's through personal and spiritual reordering. Or in other words, uh, Repentance. Mark is saying, this king that we've long awaited for, he's come, and now let's prepare the way. How do we do that? We repent. Look at where they meet John. Verse 4, it says that he appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. In this language, it, it suggests not, it's not like a one-time thing. It's not like John held a revival out in the desert for two or three days, and a bunch of people came down, and then they moved on with their life. 
It's that all of Judea, all of this part of Israel, and every citizen in Jerusalem is constantly making their way down to John. And it was really no easy feat because it was about 20 miles and a descent of 4,000 feet just to get from Jerusalem to the river where John would be. And that can be precarious. I don't know if you've ever tried to walk down a mountain, but it's not as easy as you might think. It's easy to stumble and fall, to twist an ankle, to get hurt in all kinds of ways. Just like it's not always an easy journey down to repentance. Because you and I, we tend to think it's so quick, especially if you've grown up in the church world. Man, it's just, well, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. But the Lord through John is reminding us, man, repentance can be an ugly road. And it can be even harder to carry back with you. Because it's one thing to walk down 20 miles and descend 4,000 feet, and it's another to walk back up. Or as Jesus will say later, enter through the narrow gate. That the, that the path of destruction is wide and easy, but the path of the kingdom of God is narrow and few find it. It's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing. And what about this guy? Mark will go on to tell us about John. And truthfully, he sounds a little crazy, doesn't he? We're told that he's clothed with camel's hair and wears a leather belt around his waist, that he eats locusts and wild honey. And he preached, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. But I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it seems, of all things, uh, you know, tell, telling us his message, that he's calling us to repent, that makes sense. Why tell us about his wardrobe choices? Right? I, I don't know if you've ever seen camel hair, but it's actually pretty uncomfortable. Uh, and I don't know how you feel about bugs, uh, but roaches make my skin crawl, and I can't imagine eating anything like it. And really, the face of it, it seems like this guy's crazy, Right? Well, once again, John is pulling together, or Mark, excuse me, is pulling together this choir of voices. So that when we, we recall the fact that in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, we're told that Elijah, the greatest of all prophets in the Old Testament, second only to Moses, wore camel's hair and a leather belt. And we also know that in Leviticus, locusts were singled out and mentioned as a, a food that was clean ceremonial clean and available for the people of Israel to eat. And we're also told that in Malachi chapter 4 that before the Messiah comes, one like Elijah will come in the desert and proclaim a message of repentance. So he's not crazy. The fact that he eats bugs, though, to me that's crazy. He's not crazy. He's godly. And he's come with a message from God. He has come to prepare the way for God to come to his people. He prepares not through power, not through institutions, but through a call to repent. A call to repent and a promise that those who do and those who find the king along the way, that they won't have to carry that burden of repentance back home on their own, but that God will be with them and he will carry them along. That he will show us the way. And as, as we follow this path, we realize that as, as 
as Mark begins to show us who this king is, it's not with great fanfare. It's not with displays of power. He's not shown in all of his glory. Instead, he's revealed by identifying with the worst parts about us. He's identified by stepping into isolation and insignificance. Though Mark doesn't tell us, he doesn't give us the story of Jesus' birth and life, we know from the other Gospels that he spent nearly 30 years completely anonymous. God in the flesh having to do simple chores. The one who gave the word of God having to sit under men and listen to them teach it to him. He came in humility and insignificance. And in this moment, this very one with the power to overcome every political and national and cosmic evil steps into some river on the edge of some backwater town on the edge of the world, nowhere near any hall of power or any city of significance. The king of all kings steps into the most insignificant of all wastelands. He's not the king that we wanted. Mark will tell us, starting in verse 9, that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. It's at this moment that the other gospel writers will tell us something that Mark leaves out because he has, he has his own purposes. But it's at this moment that John stops him and says, hold on a second. Uh, I need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. And Jesus will tell him that let's do it because it will fulfill all righteousness. Which again, seems like such a strange statement. But Listen to what the Lord says in other places. In Hebrews 4, verse 15, we're told that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5, that for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in Romans chapter 3, that it was to show his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. That Jesus isn't entering into this symbol of repentance because he has some sin that he has to clean up. He's stepping into this moment to announce himself as the king who comes and joins us in the worst parts of ourselves. He doesn't just take sin on himself on the cross. He identifies himself with sinful people. He's not the king we wanted, but he's the king that we dreamed of. When he came up out of the water, we're told that immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit of God descending like a dove and hearing the voice of the Father that this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And man, again, it's all over. Mark is pulling together these choir of voices that in, this, in the description of the Spirit of God descending like a dove, we're thrown back to Genesis chapter 1 where we're told that the Spirit of God ho- hovered over the water. That when earth was formless and void, the Spirit was hovering, waiting to bring life. 
And then in Genesis chapter 8, after the flood, Noah sends out the dove, a sign of deliverance after God's judgment. And so here's the Spirit of God, the one who brings life and form to this world, descending as a dove, a symbol of peace and deliverance after judgment, falling on this one. And there's more than that. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, we're promised about this one who will come, who will come in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not just a coincidence. And again in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 and 2, we're promised a king who will bring true justice to the earth. He will be both just and justifier of the ungodly. In Psalm chapter 2, we're told we're promised of a king who is the very son of God who will bring peace to the earth. And if that's not enough, something that's so interesting is the word that Mark uses in verse chapter 10 is a word he only uses twice in the entire gospel. And it's a word that, as you heard it read, is translated to be torn open, to just be split apart from top to bottom and thrown open. And he uses it here in chapter 1 to say that God tore open the heavens and threw them open to declare, this is my son, the one I love. It comes from the Greek word schizo, which no doubt you hear our modern word schizophrenia. Schizophrenia, a, a, a tearing of the mind almost, just ripping it in two. That he uses this again in only one other place in Mark chapter 15, verse 38. That at the moment of Jesus' death, Mark tells us that the the curtain in the temple was torn in two and thrown open. The curtain of the temple was schizo, spread wide. This, this curtain that guarded the way into the most holy place of the temple, the place where God himself was. And at his baptism, he, said, he tore open the heavens and said to Jesus, this is my son whom I love. And at the death of Jesus, he tears open the temple and says, you can become my son who I love. He's not the king that we wanted, but he's the one we always dreamed of. And if we follow this path laid by Jesus, we will find the way to that God who will say that you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, and with you I am well pleased. You know, the other thing that's so interesting to me about Superman is that the original story was written by two men in 1933, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. And both of these men were Jewish. They'd grown up in Jewish households, had participated in the Feast of Passover and Hanukkah and all these celebrations that promised them a day would come when a king would set the world to right. And they embody this idea in the hero Superman. The truth is that real hero has already come. And he has come, and his name is Jesus, and he has come to lead us on the path through death into the presence of God. And all you have to do is follow him. Let's pray.